0: that you can draw and come to sound interpretations, so that you can come to know God better. All these things are so important in this method of doing inductive study. So what I would like to do right now is start with just asking you first impressions, because I think that there are so many subjects, (coughs) and we're not going to get to go through all of them, and I'm not going to be able to do it. <coughs> I know, Lisa. Come on up, dear. I'm gonna let Lisa take you through. it. Lisa, do you think you can handle it? <laughs> she is so good. You <laughs> don't think I can nail it, but you don't go very far. <laughs> You can do it. I am so sorry, you guys. I every time I come into this room, this happens. There's something in the AC in here. Yeah. Probably some sort of
1: something. There is something. Okay. Oh, look at me.
0: Stuff Here, do you want this desk?
1: Nope. No,
0: I'm good. Okay. Well, Lisa's an expert, and she can fill in. I I have total trust and confidence. She is a she is a professional. I'm a professional teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so, what would you like them to start in
1: terms of where would you like us to? I go just today? wanted to see what their first impressions were. Okay. All right. So, in Jonah, uh, the first uh, we were in the first two chapters, and. So there's a progression. They believed in something beforehand. That's something I think that was really profound for me when I thought through it was we have a tendency to think that people who have not encountered God don't believe or have a flow of thought. But what was their flow of thought? What did you find out? Their progression. What was it? The, how they, how, where did they start? They started assembling themselves under God. Right. Sort of yep. So they had an idea of something over them. And then what did they flow? And, well, they had a knowledge of the Hebrew thought. Right. Because that is what they were to care about. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting thought process because you get into that, and then you also get into a subject. Some of you may have, we've, we've talked about it before, but there's always this thing that people always are so curious about because we don't do it in our culture today. What is it that they talked about that we did a little bit of word search on and did some research on? Lots, drawing lots. Yeah, everybody always gets a little, well, I don't know. Yeah, so so what was it that 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 did in terms of your thinking? What what was it that you found out perhaps that was different? Mhm. Yeah, it's not a dice game. That's what people think. God loves dice. It's like Yahtzee. It is not. Yeah, I just got out of Esther, and um, when we we're studying Esther, they had cast lots as well, but the whole point of casting lots, he kept doing it, um, Haman did, until he got the right one. So he just kept casting and casting, because God wasn't directing it, and that's what I'm like, it's like a game of Yahtzee. He just was going for it until he got what he wanted. <laughs> that's different than what this was. All right, so I'm curious, is it a whale? big fish. Big fish. How did Jesus refer to it? And some versions will say a sea monster. That's how interesting, isn't it? I had a great friend one time who said to me, I just don't believe that a whale swallowed Jonah. I'm like, it wasn't a whale. It was a great big fish. Read your Bible. Okay. Big fish. All right. Anything else about Jonah surprised you? Yes, Miss Susan. <laughs> what
2: came loud and clear to me was that God can
1: use <laughs> anybody. He's called an elected prophet. Don't you like that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I like that about him. He's reluctant. That's one of the great things about him. So one of the other things, and I want to share this with you. So stop at the bottom of page one, the last line, and then I want you to see the top of page two, verse one. Would somebody read those two together? Because it was written in a flow of thought. We put in those chapter ones and chapter two, but read the flow of thought. Just those two verses, somebody. Did you get the flow of thought? Yeah. He was in the belly of the well. How many days? Three days? And what was the next step? Then he prayed. Uh, I'm just pointing that out to you. How many days was he in the belly of the well? <laughs> and when did he pray? This is when I read this. This was one of the most profound things about Jonah. And I think it's because we, the way we divide it up, sometimes we don't get that flow of thought. This really shows you where Jonah's heart was. Three days. And I'm just thinking in parallel to our culture, culture today, what's been going on with people in a cave and darkness and all that. And they've been praying. You've read this uh, about them. I was just thinking in my head, I wonder how many days it took them to pray. Because it took Jonah how many three days yeah yeah i think that's one of the most important lessons of jonah if you could take away god can use anybody don't wait three days that's the whole thing i would like title if i was teaching don't wait three days that's exactly the sort of thing that you would do okay you want to try all
0: right so let's set let's go back i love that that was very good introductory thank you lisa she is fantastic you should yes don't go far (laughs) hang tight girl yeah because we'll see how long this works okay so let's let's start with i mean there's a bunch more i bet you had a. T- I had a list this long of subjects that came up of interest when i started looking at J- jonah and began my homework on it i started my homework weeks before we even came into class and i researched a gazillion things still didn't get through everything i wanted to look at so just know this we have to really focus our thinking on what we're looking at here in Jonah. Why are we in the book of Jonah? What is our purpose for being here? Does anybody know? (laughs) Thank you. We're in the study of kings and prophets of Israel. So that's why I gave you your timeline. It's obviously not a complete timeline. It's just a basic one to give us points of reference where you can see kind of where we're headed. Um, we are up to around the 800s or so BC. What is the next thing on the major events for the ki- the, the northern kingdom of Israel? Does anybody know what happens in 722 BC? Yes, you do. Go ahead. Assyrian. That's right. Assyrian captivity. So we're, we are seeing thus far what w- regarding the Northern Kingdom. How are they in regards to walking with God? Not okay. When we looked at um, phrases that told us, you know, each of the kings are listed in the in the books that we've uh, been through already in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. What is the key repeated phrase at the end of the lives of each of the kings? Or, that's right, so there's a choice. Either they did evil, or they did good or right in the sight of God. So, in that statement, what is the indicator there that seems to be the emphasis of importance in this historical record? Who is the emphasis really placed on? Is it placed on the kings? When we look at the lives of the kings, do we get an exhaustive... um, biography of the life of each of the kings, <coughs> What? how would you define the selections of what did go into the record? If you consider just what what went in there, what, is, what was the purpose of what was selected to go into the record? It, it showed how they followed God. Okay. Did or didn't. Did or d- in regards to being a king and leading God's people and God's nation, right? Okay. Um, so when, they, when it would say things, as Brenda said, they did right in the sight of the Lord or they did evil in the sight of the Lord, um, what was God's desire for God's people? Was his desire for them to have a human king? No. What, what took them there? hmm We know, because we're thinking about Jonah and, jo- and Jonah's disobedience and rebellion against God, right? H- have we seen this kind of attitude already in our study of kings and prophets? Yes. So this is not exclusive to Jonah, the prophet. How, by the way, where, who, who and where is Jonah a prophet to, north or south? The kingdom of the north. How many kings in the north are good? zero, big old goose egg, right? We <coughs> so that what we're looking at is a progressive his, uh, 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 advancing into the captivity that, that the northern kingdom is, is headed into. We just, our last study in series four was to look at Obadiah and Joel, correct? What was the major message in those two books? was about judgment, that a day of judgment was coming. When we looked at Obadiah, the primary emphasis was on one nation, and who were they? Edom. Edom. Now, why was Edom singled out and used as an example? In relation to Esau. Okay. All right. There was was a connection to Esau. So that's what we researched and studied out, found that there's a connection to Esau. The Edomite nation goes back to Esau. excellent. One of the reasons God chooses to put this into the record for us is the fact that their major sin, their major affront against the Lord was how they treated Israel, their attitude towards Israel, and the way that they dealt with them, right? Does that have any application for us yet today? (laughs) Tell me your, your... experiences with conversations and with dealings with people when you're trying to explain to them how God feels about this subject? <laughs> okay, right. So and d- do you think we're making any headway on correcting that false narrative? The, the church on the whole, are we making some headway on correcting that at this point? What, what do you say, why do you say no? Well,
1: I think when there's a, I'm saying no in terms of overall, but there has been some encouragement, I should say. Yeah,
0: like several well, and now. I specifically picked on you because you've just been overseas and been dealing with, with refugee Arabs, the Muslims, basically, yeah. the Muslims, right? So, tell us how you see this in the world today, what's going on there?
1: Uh, wholeheartedly. Jesus is moving among Muslims that want to change. Absolutely. Most of it is by dreams and visions. Most of it is by healing. They're so desperate because of the the destruction of the countries um, to help. And they're fleeing into other countries out of Syria where Christianity is available, one of them being Lebanon, which is where I go quite a lot. Um, And they are coming to Christ, most of it out of need. But definitely, he is meeting them left and right everywhere you go. And when, even if these countries become available for them to go back, they won't go back the same. Okay. That's what has happened. And the church has exploded in Syria. Um, most, I would say there was probably seven churches total in Syria. They now have over 1,500.
0: Isn't that Security awesome? The
1: community has just exploded. That's and fantastic. Most of it is resources, they, they're, they're desperate.
0: That's amazing. Okay, so how can we maybe make a parallel um, observation of what you just described is going on in our current history to what we have observed this week with Jonah and his attitude toward the the unbelieving world? Is there any, any, any comparison there? Do you see um, I have to you know my confession would be that i i my love for Israel almost pits me against the Arab world, right in many ways. Yeah. I too lived in the Middle East for eight years in Turkey, and um, so I have a love for them individually, but kind of in my mindset on the whole, I have a negative feeling toward them and this is this is not. What the Lord wants from us, right? Is, would you conclude that this week what you see from what Jonah did concerning Assyria and t- toward going into Nineveh, that this was not pleasing to the Lord? His attitude toward them was not pleasing. Okay. Did he have good reasons for disliking them? Yes. Yes. W- w- ca- did anybody do research on the Assyrian nation and at all? Did anybody do any... Ex- <laughs> Please tell me you did. Well <laughs> <laughs> I know from other studies that Assyria was very brutal they were um You so don't want to go wrong with Assyria. Assereals are bad they're bad people. Yeah. But it's true we have to let the word of God be the deciding factor. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, that's what they that call us. Mm-hmm.
1: But we've got on one side, Planned Parenthood, um, anti-religion, Prairie High Public School, and then
0: on the other hand, we will under God in all these areas. It's mostly, yes. On the th- uh, rule of thumb. Yeah. So what, you're, what what we're seeing here is we've got an attitude. Par- problem though in our hearts as people, correct? We have a we have a nation of people who if we're not lined aligned with the word of God and a no- true knowledge of God, it is very easy for us to take an emotional journey down a wrong word path, right? You ever heard him called wayward Jonah, right? And I love what you said earlier Susan about how God can even use Jonah, then guess what that means? He can even use me, right? Even though I'm I'm flawed. I'll take this back to David. What do we know about King David in in relationship to what we've seen on the whole? She's speaking, she's oh, she's not talking to us. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kathleen. Well, he did have a
1: heart, uh, for the Lord.
0: Yes. Isn't that amazing? This is a man who committed murder and adultery, and yet God called him a man after God's own heart. Yeah. So what was the significant difference, then, between what David did and what all these kings of the North did that were all deemed as evil in the eyes of God? He would, he was always very he bad How bad can your misdeeds be? be bad. Yeah. yeah. OK. I would like a reader, somebody, I have a, sm- a small paragraph here. I would like you to, re- to someone to read this for me. Who's, who can read nice and loudly? Jan, can you do that? Uh, hopefully, the, skip the words that are big. Or just, and make up something, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, from starting with this yellow and read to the bottom. What I want to do is, oops, what I want to do is set the stage. Oh, there it is, nicely. What I want to do is set the stage for you to understand possibly Jonah's heart what were the prejudices that he had that drew him away from walking in the ways of God and in the heart of God all right Nineveh was the capital of the, the cruelest, most in
2: world for example writing, uh, one of his conquests somebody boasted i stormed the mountain peaks and took them In the midst of the mighty mountain I slaughtered them, with their blood I dyed the mountain red like wool. The heads of their warriors I cut off and I formed them into a pillar over against their city. Their young men and their maidens I burned in the fire. Regarding another captured leader, he writes, I flayed him, his skin was spread upon the wall of the city. He also wrote, also, of mutilating the bodies of five captives and stacking their corpses in piles. That was one king. Then, the II boasted of his cruelties after one of his campaigns. A pyramid of heads I reared in front of his city. Their youths and their maidens I burned up in flames. Shinachminib wrote of his enemies, I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a stream. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and entrails run down upon the wide earth. Their hands I cut off. Mm. Uh, and there's a third one. This one starts with an A. Described his treatment of a captured leader in these words. I pierced his chin with my keen hand dagger through his jaw. I passed a rope, put a dog chain upon him, and made him occupy a kennel. In his campaign against Egypt, this same man also boasted that his officials hung Egyptian corpses on stakes and stripped off their skins and covered the city walls with them.
0: Wow. (laughs)
2: Uh, And then there's an aside. No wonder Nahum called Nineveh the city of blood, a city noted for its cruelty.
0: Okay, very good. That's good enough. Okay. I, I mean, we could go on, but there's no need, right? I know, it's pretty gross to, to read, but <coughs> do you think having this insight helps you a little bit understanding the heart and the, the actions of Jonah? Are they humanly understandable? <coughs> you know, the prejudices that you and I carry would you say that they are also based in some truths about behaviors and, and legitimate fears? When you travel, for instance, Lisa, to the Middle East today, yeah. is there not something that kind of just lays in the back of your mind that makes you cautious and makes you have a sense of fear to a degree? Obviously, you go because the God, God sends you and you have that empowerment, but is it logical and is it reasonable to have some of these fears? Okay, so I'm trying to just kind of lay a scale of, of balance as we're looking at Jonah. On the one hand, he's a man of God. He's been called of God. We've, we see later that he had made a vow to the Lord, which he was breaking in this particular rec- rec- recorded event. But yet on the other hand, we can also see that although he broke his vows, we can kind of see emotionally why he did what he did, right? We can see the the, the what caused him to go wayward. So with all that in, in mind, it helps us, I think, to set context for everything that we're going to be looking at here this morning. It helps us to better um, keep the balance of not going too far of judging him, but also not going too far of letting him off the hook, right? We don't want him to say, well, it's okay. He had a good reason. It's, a, it's just fine. Do we do that in the church today sometimes? We see people in situations we see them committing sins in order to resolve their situations and then w- we often justify well they can't help it because do we see that do we do it in our own personal lives as well so what i'm i'm hoping we're going to be able to do by the time we're done with what we're looking at here in these two very short weeks is to really put before God our emotions and our feelings and our experiences of of life and allow the Lord to just wash us, to cleanse us, to put our minds aright so that we're walking in the ways of God so that our attitudes are those of God's, not of men, and that they're based on truth, not on emotion. Does that kind of make sense to all of us? When you look at the timeline here, Let's go back and take a look real quickly again. We talked about Obadiah and Joel. So, the first three series that we accomplished, we looked at l- literally just king after king after king, setting the pattern. What were we looking at in the patterns of these men's lives? Do you remember? What were some of the things we were seeing? Okay. Okay, so we saw the sins of the nation on the whole, the things that were going on. How were the ki- ha- the kings handling those? Mostly joining in. Okay, Al- either allowing or to, or they themselves contributing, right? Building their own places and altars of high high places. Okay, so we see uh, we see the the through the record we have looked at and observed. Israel's failings, their shortcomings. We know that God had laid laws and set them before them so that they knew the right thing to do, correct? But they were not doing it. And so in, in this particular uh, study, what we're looking at then is the responsibility of leadership over God's people. What is a king to be like? What is it that makes or motivates God to deem them they did evil or they did good? because certainly it's not just behavior because we look at David who committed both adultery and murder. God said of him, he had a heart after God, and we see him deemed as the standard. he's almost like the the template upon which every other king that we've come across, they lay it on there, and I put this up here often. This is the statement we see after the assessment of each king. It says, he did right or he did wrong in the, in the eyes of the Lord or the sight of the Lord like his father David. Or he kind of did like his father David or he didn't quite do like his father David. I mean, it's all of them, it's a comparison to David, who was a man of shortcomings and sin. And yet God saw him as doing good. On the other hand, we have Jeroboam. So what do we remember about Jeroboam? What was going on in the north that caused all the kings of the north ended up being evil kings? What was going on in that nation in the north? Well, he set up his own religious system. That was, the, that was the, the, the crux, wasn't it? So when God is looking to deem whether they did right or wrong, what is it being based upon? That's right. It's all about relationship with God. It's whether or not they followed the laws of God and obeyed the laws of God. Not perfectly, not, it was not required to be without flaw, but it was required that they make, make the, uh, the attempt to follow God faithfully. And when they had uh, failures, then they were to come back to God in repentance, right? All right, so what, what we see then in those assessments that are recorded is stories of these men's lives, records of events that show us where they failed and, and how God responded, right? Or where they did well and how God also responded. So now we start, we, we did Obadiah and Joel then as an, as a lay-on in our, in our storyline, after we got most of those kings laid out for us, and we we're beginning to see the pattern, and what, what God is wanting us to see there, God sent, God gave us these two prophets, Obadiah and Joel, to send them a warning. Why was the warning being sent? It's obvious, but why did they send, the, why was God sending the warning? Yes, so he w- and in, when God said judgment is coming, he starts by pointing out Edom, but then he follows it on by including whom? Is it just Edom that's going to be judged? It's all, it's all the nations. So that was very interesting to me because he made that flip. He started by using Edom as an example. Why do you think he used Edom as an example to Israel? How close was their relationship with Edom? How, how much animosity was there between Israel and Edom? And, w- and what was the root of their relationship or should it have been? Because w- w- yes, they were brothers. Your brother Esau, he said, or your brother Israel, they refer back and forth. Because there was a a familia, a family relationship. Esau and Jacob, they were brothers, and from the, these brothers who went two different directions in relationship to God, they ended up be splitting the family and splitting their relationships and building this great uh, measure of animosity. And I do think that the animosity ran deep because of the fact that they felt betrayed in that it was family. Do you think that often you feel more betrayed when it's your family that comes against you than when it's just the world? Yeah, so God uses Edom, and then he moves from there into the nations and says they're all going to be judged. Then we saw Joel, and we saw the bigger picture of that that great day that was coming, and it's called the Day of the Lord. Okay, let's go back and do a little bit on the literary works. What we want to know is... When we are looking at the record of the kings and prophets, what kind of literary works are, have we been looking at? Historical. historical. They are historical. Now, as inductive students, that's a significant thing. Why? And, and they are actually carefully selected. Okay, so these are carefully historical, and they're carefully selected accounts. In other words, there's lots of detail about each of these kings that's left out, so we don't get all the story about every king's life. Why? Because it's not doing what the author's purpose is for his writing of this record. So let's put that up here. Many details are left out. Often in inductive Bible study, we say sometimes it's not what you see, but also what you don't see. Not only is what is there important, but sometimes what is not there is important. And it helps you to come to sound interpretation when you're making your observation. So when it comes to the the history of the kings and the prophets, you are looking to see what is God pointing out? What is God emphasizing? And if if you're, you know, Curious as to, well, why didn't we get all this? Why didn't we get all that? Good question. Why didn't we get all that? Obviously, God didn't think that it was important uh, to accomplish the the goal of the writing of kings and prophets. So, these two phrases. um, One did evil. Or... Did right? Are key repeated phrases right in in this particular record? Right. Um, <coughs> and we've already talked about it, but the, um, the history that is recorded, it shows right and wrong in relationship to who. Who gets to make the judgment of what's right and what's wrong? God does. Now this is, this is a, I know that sounds very, very simplistic, but I want you to think about this. If it's not God making decisions for you and I in our thinking about what is good and what is evil, or what is right and what is wrong, then who is making the decision? Mm-hmm. And and you know what if say I say okay, it's going to be my decision. I get to make the decision what's good and what's evil. Are you all going to be okay with that? Yes. Yes. And they said they on very, trail to hell. very well put. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> <Are you laughs> Title of book. Yes, it, it it's it's like Tran- <laughs> <laughs> There you go. <laughs> okay, uh, God, uh, God sets the standard for good and evil, right? So we're going to know that, and, and He ex and He lays that out in the book as you uh, the books that we've looked at so far okay so that talks about it as far as the literary works per per se when you're looking at historical records how do you interpret history it is literal interpretation Unless the author in his writing indicates through his language that he's, he's making an example of, uh, maybe he's moved into a parable or he's moved into an, an analogy, right, or imagery. But otherwise, what is stated is factual, correct? Okay, so if it's a factual, now this is so cool because this is a, one of those rule of thumbs that we use that, for as inductive Bible study students, that really helps anchor our feats and come into sound interpretation in the Word of God. If you absolutely know that the Word of God's literary rules are applying to the Bible as well as it does to any other literary work, then you've got some boundaries and guidelines to be able to help you say, okay, if this is a historical record, then it's fact, right? And unless the literary writing itself tells you otherwise, you are to interpret it factually, literally, that helps you a great deal to not go off into little crazy thoughts on your own. If God is setting the standard for good and evil and he's giving you a a story, for instance, we looked at the subject of Sheol this week. Although she didn't take us there, you can go into the book of Luke and there's a a record there about Sheol of Lazarus and the rich man. And in that, people have taken wrongly so, but they have taken that and said, it's a parable. But the literary writing of itself, as you observe the text, it does not indicate it is a parable at all. It does not follow any of the guidelines for what a parable will be phrased like and the terminologies that are used in it. Neither does the writer of that tell you, as he has all the previous times in the book, uh, he told a parable. He says Jesus will often, he says it right up front, and he told him this parable, and he told him that parable. Well, in Luke, he does not say that. So it's a literal, factual thing, and this is so important for interpreting then what's said in there about Sheol, about Lazarus, about the bosom of Abraham, about the place of torment, for you to come to sound interpretations that are literal, factual understandings of truth. Super important. Okay, so literary works, when it comes to us having context for what we're looking at here. So what is the author's purpose? And I know this is review, but this is great for us. Just in a nutshell, what do you see as the author's purpose for writing the history record of the kings and prophets? What are we learning Why do you think God gave us the record of the kings and prophets? It's about his beloved people and how they were called by his name. Okay. We make comparisons Okay. So that we can know truth versus lies, so that we can li- align ourselves by the truth um, messages that we draw out of these storylines, right? So in doing that... Um, And since the standard of what's good and what's evil is God, right, then what what is it that we're actually um, studying about as the the most important subject? There you go. Thank you. The visitor. Thank you. Nice. Reveal Reveal the um, the character and attributes of God's of God.
2: It's a record of actions. I have a record of interpretation or the judgment of the actions, in a similar way that uh, we're also judged by our fruits. Yes,
0: oh very good, wow you're hitting, it. you're doing really well. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, this is super, okay, so what he 's saying there is, if we are judged by our actions, which is what we 're seeing these kings do we 're seeing events of the, the kings in their activities, right the things that they do as kings, and then we 're seeing god 's response to those activities right are they are they good or bad responses both right so what is the determining factor as to whether or not God is positive in his response or negative if them is, he them them. Okay, now, wow, that sounds really familiar to me. Where have I heard that before? Yes, but what does that take us back to? The covenant that God established with Israel as the as a nation to begin with. So God chose, actually he birthed the nation from one man, Abraham, a man of faith, and he and he allowed them for a time to build up their numbers in their time of captivity. Then he brings them out through wonders and, and miracles to show to them who he is, to expose them to the God of Israel. He takes and places them on the land, and then he gives them a covenant. He says, if you, if you obey me, I will bless. If you disobey, I will curse. So in this, he's basically teaching by demonstration God's righteous judgments whether they're positive or whether they're negative, right? To teach us God's righteous judgments. Okay, so sometimes it's a warning and sometimes it's a blessing. It can be either, depending on which story or which record, I should say, you're um, looking at. The other thing that I don't know if you have caught it or not, but on the whole, tell me what you think about the decision for Israel to have a human king. Good choice, bad choice. No. <laughs> and we told them what would happen if they took it. To you. Okay. Exactly. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, that, well, there you go. That's <laughs> a that's a that's a good a good example again of God's sovereign knowledge, you bef- the end before the beginning. Mm-hmm. And what was the prerequisite for him doing that? That's right. They had to turn to him, agree with him, repent of their sin, and then he would bless, right? Okay, so now what we want to see then is concerning that, relate the, the concept of kings, what do you think is God's reason for allowing them to? I mean, really, if this is an exercise of futility and has it been an exercise of futility so far in in what we've seen about kings and prophets? Why would God go ahead and say, yes, you can have a king? Okay. Okay. In part, it's an exercise of our free will for him to say, I'm going to give you what you think you want. And through that, I'm going to allow you to experience what happens when you get something that you really shouldn't have to begin with, right? What's going to, what is the end result of that for people, particularly here we are in this present age, we're looking back on this and we're studying the big, we've got the advantage of seeing the big picture, right? We get to see all of completed history. When you lay that history out before you, would you vote for having a king over you today if you were that nation? No, who who would be an acceptable king? Okay, Jesus, good job. See, it's always God, love, or Jesus. That's always the answer, uh, or heaven. Yeah, there you go. Okay, yeah, or Right, exactly. Okay. So here's the, here's the other thing. I think that we are supposed to be really getting out of this, as far as for the context of understanding, and and this will include our looking at Jonah, how we view Jonah, and the record of Jonah, and why God gave it to us, it ties back to eventually this statement here, to reveal the weakness of men as kings, and therefore, so that we will come to desire God alone as our king. What is the end result of all the generations of kings and kingdoms. We've studied Daniel before. We've studied Revelation. What happens at the end of those days of tribulation? What is it that's established? God's kingdom, the king, the kingdom of God on earth, right? So Jesus comes back and he begins to rule and reign. So do you think that the the understanding of looking at what we've been looking at here, the lessons that we are learning is, Who is the righteous one who we can follow as our king? So one day when Jesus does come, and you and I as believers will be uh, working with him as his helpmate, right, as his bride, and we will be submitting under his authority, we will do so with full knowledge and full understanding in a free and an open heart of understanding he is the righteous God, king who can rule and reign for us. He is the king who is full of love and compassion. He is the king who will do it right. He is the king that will never sin, as opposed to what we are seeing here. All these kings, could any of them, even David, who's the standard bearer, even David didn't do it fully right. But who will do it fully right? So do you think that it's possible that really the most major purpose in God writing this record for us, is for us to come to that place where we, we not only believe it, but we long for Jesus to be our king. How, how do we get there?
2: What's our, our natural position, or default position, is we're rebellious against God.
0: Yes. Since the
2: fall, right? Yes. So everything And he's right, and he's the only one right. It's that in
0: everything. It absolutely... Yes. Yes. So how do we get to that place of of li- lining ourselves up with that's God? Key. How do we do that? Yeah. What would you su- say is the way we do this? learn it, know it, and learn from the mistakes of those before you, right? We, we have to die People few more. Well, absolutely. To begin with, you have to start with relationship with God. What is the the um, empowering that we have so that we can have that desire? The Holy, the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, do we even desire to follow the Lord in this manner? No. <coughs> excuse me. So for you and I in this room, I'm, ass- I'm, you know, I'm going to make a collective assumption. We are all believers in this room. And that I'm not just speaking for no reason because it, d- quote, does not apply to us. It, this does apply to us. The lessons that we are looking at with Jonah, is Jonah a, quote, believer? Was he one who loved the Lord and was following the Lord? up to the point of the story, which by the way, he tells on himself, right? (laughs) He rats himself out by giving this story, which shows a great deal of character on his part, not to mention divine inspiration, right? But that God, God used him and then God allowed him to tell his story of what not to do, right? All right, so let's put this up here that we need to, we are being taught, let's see, or is teaching us. Okay, now this sets the whole stage for everything else that we're gonna talk about from now to the end of class. And this is so important, particularly for those of you who are new and have not been, you know, in this class with us previously, because quite honestly, this is nothing like what we've covered. And we've done a ton of homework up to this point. But this kind of sets the stage. Now you understand the literary works, how you're to interpret it. You're to understand the author's purpose of what we're looking at. The purpose for looking at all these kings is that we are going to come to desire no king but God himself, that we are going to be taught uh, righteousness, that God is the righteous judge. He is the one who determines right and wrong, good and evil, and that we are to to submit to that. And therefore we must, as as, um, Diane said, we are to know the word God in order to know what God says is right and wrong. And in it, we are seeing and being revealed or, or exposed to the character and attributes of our God. We're seeing how he responds to sin, how he resp- responds to a repentant heart, how he responds to righteous living, right? And you really get to see the heart of God also in his greatest desire. What is God's greatest desire for us? Huh? that all men would come to know him right and that we would love him that and his greatest joy and delight is in giving us blessing in answering answering our prayer so if we want to c- to develop that relationship, then we need to observe the things that he's written from a, a balanced perspective that says, this is why the author has written the things that he has written through God, and that these are the things then that God wants us to know through this record. Okay. So let's now start with Jonah. So we had the, the our last two prophets that we looked at, Obadiah and Joel, in part four, What we saw there was the subject of what? Major subject, judgment. All about judgment. Now we are moving into Jonah. What what did you see? uh, What is your impression as far as what is the major subject of of inference in Jonah? What is he trying to convey there? Compassion. Compassion. Isn't that amazing? Do you see the contrast? We have... We have, let's just put it up here so we don't forget. So we see judgment down here with these two prophets. And up here we have compassion. Wow. What a nice balance that is to, for God to have taken us along and f- exposed us to so much um, the wrath of God is going to come down and pour upon you, and everything is going to be wiped out, the earth is going to be destroyed, all men are going to be judged. I mean, it there was kind of, it was like a little mini revelation study w- that we went through, when we, as particularly in uh, Joel, right? But now we're ready to go to, to Jonah, but we're not going to see um, compassion through an emotional story of fluff and happiness, right? You learn about the compassion of God the, through the uh, life of one who needed to understand the compassion of God. Because wh- what do you think God wants us to know about compassion? Or why is it that he feels compassion is so essential? Yes. What, is the, what are the two greatest commandments according to Jesus? and love your neighbor as yourself. And and the way that you love your neighbor through the New Testament, it is endless, all the examples of of showing it. But on the whole, compassion certainly overrides all of it. It's to have a love for people and to view them from the perspective of God. There's going to be next week in homework a a statement that he says kind of toward the end that that these were people in, in Assyria, in Nineveh, that didn't know their right hand from their left right? And he says, and they need to know their right hand from their left. What, what is that? Uh, uh, what is that? What do they call those? They call those like, not a simile, but it's a, it's a well-known phrase or saying of the time, that th- and a, he- a Hebrew idiom or something like that, right? Th- what does it mean to, to not know your right hand from your left? Okay. You don't know. You don't understand. You don't have all the truth, okay? So if you don't know what's going on, are you able to make good judgments for yourself in your life? No. So we have to go back to knowing what is good and what is evil based on a plumb line of truth, and that plumb line of truth for you and I is written in the Word of God, and it's God Himself, and what He says is good and evil. So we get to make our decisions based on that. All right, so boy, if we could just apply that in our lives, we would, ha- we would be so much better. All right, let's go to Jonah chapter 1. Let's start there and just do a, a walkthrough. See if I can find my observation worksheet. Here it is. Okay. Jonah chapter one, you did your observation worksheet, you looked at the chapter on the whole, you marked your key words. In conclusion, what was, re- remember when you're working historical books, what are your m- most important factors in historical records? Okay people, places, and events. I did it backwards. People, places, and events, right? So what was the people, places, and events of chapter one? What was the major thing going on there? Who was it about, and what, what happened? It's about Jonah. I'm sorry, say it again. Okay, so the, the, so Jonah, the word of God has come to him. Jonah is told to do what? Go to Nineveh. Go to Nineveh. So your first two verses, verses, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's one and two. God sent Jonah to Nineveh. Okay, then in verse uh, three, what did Jonah do? Yeah, <coughs> he really did. Mm-hmm. And there's a phrase in there that it says he rose up to flee to Tarshish and from what? Okay. From the presence of the Lord. Now we did some research on what it means to be away from the presence of the Lord or to run from the presence of the Lord or to be in the presence of the Lord. We kind of looked at it from both sides. Kay is do a lot of work on that. What did you learn about the one who leaves the presence of the Lord? Yeah, that's not okay. Leaving His presence is not a good place, not where you want to be. Why not? Why do you want to be in the presence of the Lord? Do you remember what Psalm 16 said? It was one of the verses you looked at. We're on day three's homework, page six. If you need help. I love that. In his presence is joy and gladness and rejoicing and pleasures forever. So we know that when, it, uh, when it, it speaks about then therefore leaving the presence of the Lord, why would you do that? In particular, why would a man of God leave the presence of the Lord? We, well, what did we look at? The first thing she took us to was what? Do you remember? Genesis chapter... Three. <laughs> right? What happened? Well, he knows he's he's made up his mind that he's afraid or this is not something that he's comfortable doing. So he's trying to hide. There you go. What happened in, Ge- in our Genesis record with Adam and Eve when they sinned? They the first thing they did was hide from the presence of the Lord. And then when the Lord came to them, what did he say? Who told you that who told you that and why are you hiding right and what had they made for themselves fig the leaves. leaves something to cover them so the their their sin had opened their eyes to understand their nakedness nakedness is is kind of a a, a understanding of of our sinfulness our flesh our fleshliness and so they had they had sinned, and so they're hiding from the Lord. Um, what happened in Genesis 4 in regard to that? Do you remember the story there? The record that we looked at? I, and this is one I particularly like. I think it's a great, um, le- all by itself, we could spend a whole lesson on just this. So tell me what happened with Cain. He and his brother brought offerings to the Lord, and his brother's offering was? One brought grain. Okay, Cain brought the grain, and Abel brought from the flock of the field, right, from his flock. Go ahead. Right, and by the way, although it doesn't, it has not been taught yet in the text. We ne- we we do know, however, since it was not acceptable. Why was it not acceptable? What had Abel brought that Cain had not? When Cain brought an arm of. The of That's right. It really indicates, because as a matter of fact, what was God's response to him when he didn't, was not finding favor with Cain's offering? What was it that he told Cain that he, he could fix, how he could fix this mess that he got himself into? What did he tell him? If you don't do what is right, That's right. You do yeah. If you do what is right, will your countenance not be lifted? The, the conclusion to that by analyzing it is, did he know the right thing to do? did he understand he had done the wrong thing? God calls him on it. And as a matter of fact, the next part of that text says, sin is crouching at your door. You must what? Master it. God literally threw it back in his lap and says, you have a decision here. You can either do it my way or not right? And if sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you, it desires to take your life, it desires to r- rip me and you apart from our relationship, in the end, what does Cain do? Hmm? Huh? He actually kills his brother, and he does not repent, and in the end, what, w- do you remember what it said? I don't have that verse open, but do you remember what um, what Cain did then, after God, after God challenges him, he approaches him and he says, where is your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? Right? And then what? The Lord curses him. Okay. Then he marks him. Mm-hmm. And then he throws him out of his book. And he, and he, But actually, I want you to reread it very carefully, though, because there's a, a the the actually, this, the way that it states it in the in the text is, Who left whom? Did God throw him out, or did he leave? Cain went out from the presence. Cain went out from the presence. So, whose choice was it for him to leave the presence of the Lord? Uh Aha! And what was the decision factor in it? His sin and his unwillingness to repent, even though God said to him, "If you do what's right, if you correct this, if you make amends, if you repent of your way." The, the problem here was his brother, Abel, had brought an offering of the flock, meaning blood. The shedding of blood was made. How is sin atoned for? Only with the, sh- according to Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, right? So in that particular record, although there's not a record prior, it's clearly shown to us within the text he knew what was right to do, but he chose not to. And the consequence was he left the presence of the Lord. So what does it mean, then, for Jonah to leave the presence of the Lord? He was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. How does he compare to what we've looked at in the two Genesis records we just discussed? Yeah, it's basically the same. In other words, there's nothing new under heaven. Isn't, didn't Solomon write that, right? There's nothing new under heaven when you and I sin, when you sin, think of it in your own personal life, when you have committed some kind of a, a sin, small or great, and we don't need to know what it is, but how how is your relationship with God? Do you see yourself doing what Jonah has done here in the fleeing, or what uh, uh, Adam and Eve did when they sinned? Do you s- Do you find yourself wanting to Pull back from the Lord and from God's people and from God's house and from worship of the Lord. And and how are we going to rectify that? I think God made it clear in chapter 4. How do you rectify it? You know the right thing to do and you're to do it. Exactly. Okay. All right. So we have Jonah uh, in verse 3. He fled. Now, for those of you who don't know, what I'm doing is giving you an outline of the chapter, how to break down the verses. One of the great things about um, historical records is they they're, they are um, they have a thread of a storyline, and it's kind of hard sometimes to pull out just the bullet points. And if you and I are doing them slightly different, it's okay as long as you still see the basic flow of thought and that you're accurate in it. We don't have to be exactly uh, matchy-matchy on our titles, but what you're trying to do is to just get the flow of thought. What do you see is going on that connects one part of the story to the next part of to the next part. So we see God sent Jonah to go to Nineveh. The next thing we see is Jonah fled to Tarshish. So he, he left. Um well in that they were rebelling against doing what was right, yes. Uh, I see a little differently. Okay. Was a good guy. Yes. A little messed up. Absolutely. So one's a believer and one's not. Okay. Yes. I'm not saying that I'm not saying their position with God is the same. I'm saying their sin was the same. Their sin was the same in that they weren't being obedient to God. They both were being acting in, in willful disobedience. Now, here's the difference. When we get to the next part, we're going to look at, see, how did God deal with Jonah as opposed to Cain?
2: Well, I think that's what's all it's coming down to. Yeah. The motive of Jonah, when he treated, you know, told the Savior, throw me overboard, okay, he would sacrifice himself. Cain, that's no indication at all that
0: he would do anything. Yeah. So I look at but I like what Lisa said also earlier about how long did it take Jonah to finally turn around. Oh yeah, he was he was willing to be thrown overboard, but he was also, as we're going to see when we get to chapter 4, he would rather die than see God give j- mercy or compassion to those Ninevites, right? He's up on that hill, he's watching, we're going to get there next week, or the week after. But, um but yeah, right. But, I, but he, here what we're seeing is, <laughs> I can too, actually, so in many cases there, you know, you know, have there been people in your life that you, you know, you have your prayers, you lift them to the Lord. When you're under really severe persecution from a person or a group, right? Um, in this case, did, did Jonah have justification to really fear and hate the Ninevites? Absolutely. We just read a tiny bit of some of the things that went on. It was going on presently in his own day. Um, and it continued to do so to the point that eventually Assyria takes them into their captivity. Um, so he has ju- he has justification to do that. But sometimes when we get there, I, I know when we've, we've gone through some family things where, you know, your prayer is uh, God get them, you know. J- just, you know, I, I have to tell you, with complete honesty I, honesty, I have said, "Well, I I don't want you to kill them, but I just want you to get rid of them. I just want you to, like take them somewhere and drop them off the end of the earth somewhere, out of my out of my realm, right? But is that how God works? It doesn't seem to be so f- in my life. Yes, yes, yes. There you go." That's <coughs> he does. And he also knows what his goal is in working through, through Jonah. This is where I, I see there's so many nuances in this st- story. Think about when you were like four or five years old back in Sunday school learning about Jonah and the, and, and the, you know, the whale that s- swallowed this man. You know, wow, did we miss a bunch, right? How many of you have ever watched the, um, uh, the uh, Veggie Tale, Jonah? it's hysterical, but I'm talking about deep truths in there. They've got, they have nailed it in many, in many cases. As a matter of fact, there was one little statement that used to, I used to think, why did they do that? They called them fish slappers in the movie. I was listening to a sermon online just recently, and one of the gods that they worshipped, and I've got it in my history note, in my notes here, I can look for it. Go ahead, <laughs> Kathleen, you're nodding. Do you know about this? Go ahead. I don't know his name either. Like I A E or E A is his name. E A, weird name. That's their god. It's a it's a fish. It's a god of the of the sea and of the uh, the underworld of the sea. And so it's like basically it's of the fish. He's in control of the waters and the fishes. And and on the obelisks that have been found in archaeological finds, they show this god, and from him is streams of water and fish flowing through it. And so in the Jonah tale, they were fish slappers, right? Because it was hysterical. I went, oh my gosh, they actually pulled that right out of history. They did good, right? Um, and I have a photograph of it, actually. Here, see if I can look, look here and pull, pull it out for you. Because it's really interesting, I think, when you, when you can kind of tie some of these things. I'll pass it around for you. It's this one right here the gods of EA. I'll pass it around. You guys can take a look. It's in this little obelisk here. You can barely see it, but it is there, and um, it's very interesting. So we have um, Jonah fleeing to Tarshish. We see the, the, I, the concept of running from the presence of the Lord. Now, now let's go to the next step. How, is it possible for you and I to actually flee from the presence of the Lord? No, particularly as Christians, will God ever abandon us that we would be allowed to flee? As opposed to Cain, who God allowed him to leave and he did not pursue him. But what did he do with Jonah? Jonah fled, and what did God do? Well, what's the next part of this in verse 4? What did God do? <laughs> I, I, They hurled a great storm. I think also this
1: is a good story, and we're not there yet. But I think this is a great story to show. Whatever Jonah had going on in his heart was different than what God wanted him to do. But sometimes I think we do that too, where we have a way that people should come to the Lord. We've determined but God has his own plan. When we don't see it going the way we think it should be going,
0: mm-hmm. we don't get out of the yes. way for God. Yes, absolutely. Well, one of the verses that we looked at this week was about that. About uh, God says uh, when when we're praying and we're not seeing answers from God, what is God? Sa- what does God said? That was it. Um, like Obadiah, it was one of the minor prophets, and he says, "You would not believe if you saw the things that I am doing. If you if you you can't see them yet." Yet we're not there yet, but if you only could see the things that I have planned and the things that I am doing, right? So sometimes we pray, and we ask God to do things, and we don't see him working. It doesn't mean he's not, right? It may, There's a plan. God's greatest desire is that all men be saved. In this storyline, God is showing um, Jonah that th- that he is to both have compassion for him and he's sending them to him. Why do you think God would send him if there was not going to be a bearing of fruit? No, I think he would send them. Yeah. Now sometimes the fruit is they are now accountable for what they know. Well, Just so you know them. that sometimes he it's that.
1: He sent them not only for Nineveh. He sent them for Jonah because we see the change. Like. We don't towards it, but he obviously wrote the story, so we see
0: something. There you go. By by analytical observation, we come to conclude that Jonah does learn from this experience, eventually he does come around and repent, and he writes under divine inspiration about what he went through, and his rebellion, and how it all turned out for him, right? And in the end, we see God is the the sovereign, and that although Jonah tried to flee from the presence of the Lord, is that possible? Truly, why is that not possible? What do we know in the word of God about God's presence? He won't leave us or forsake us. Can I, if I leave here and go over there, is he not going to be over there? If If I leave from here and go up there, is he not going to be up there? No matter where I go, what? There he is. He's an omnipresent God. So knowing that, do you think Jonah knew that? Yes, and yet he was trying to flee. So what motivated him to try to flee? he just didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. He was afraid, and he also just simply did not like those Assyrians. He did not like those Ninevites with good cause, but he just did not like it. As a matter of fact, he complains on that in, the, in our next week's work. That Lord, I knew you'd forgive them. <laughs> See, this is why I didn't want to go, right? I told you this before. So, he, you know, he's very upset about what God's doing. All right, so the Lord hurled a great storm and God pursued. Now, so God pursues us because he desires restoration and fellowship with us. We see this with Adam and Eve. We see this with um, Jonah, but the contrast is Cain. And I think that was a really good uh, contrast, and I'm glad you brought it up, because it really does show the difference in how God deals with each individual individually he deals with us how does he know that he should not continue to pursue Cain because he's all knowing as well he sees the end from the beginning so he knows the heart the, you know hebrews says that that he not only examines the heart but he examines the intent uh, and the desires of the heart so he goes he goes to the full measure god is vested by the way in our holiness and our obedience. One of the things that God says in his word to us says that when he seals us, he seals us until the day of redemption. And in that process, then he also refines us, right? To make us more like Christ, to to make us more in, in godliness. And God holds us then accountable for our responsibilities, right? Our vows before him. In chapter two, verse nine, we see later Jonah is going to say, I'm, now I'm going to recommit to my vow, right? I'm going I'm to at least go that far with God. I'm not going to be happy about it, but I am going to say, okay, I will be obedient. Uh, there's a great story of the two sons that were supposed to go out and work in the field, right? Do you remember this? And the one son said, no, I won't. But then he went. And then the other son said, yes, I will. And then he never went. Which one pleased God? The one who actually went, even though his first word was no, I see that as Jonah. You know, his first word was no, but he did. Eventually, his heart turned, and he and he did go. He did the right thing. Okay. Um, now we're going to do five to nine verses. Five to nine. What happens in these verses? In the story, what happens next? What is your key repeated words in these, this paragraph? Okay, there's 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 very interesting uh, reference here to the fact that the sailors seem to be men who are crying out to whom? To their gods. To their gods right? So they're busy praying to their gods, and um, so that what we see that is that it seems like they actually seem to have more of a sincere attempt anyway to honor their gods than even Jonah at this moment, right? So it's the, un- it's the heathens showing up the, the man of God at this point, all right? So we see the idea of them crying out to, the, to their gods, and then they want him to call upon their, his god as well, What other event is in here? Remember it's people, places, and events. What's the event that takes place here that they determine? They cast lots. They cast lots. So what did we learn about casting of lots? A lot was cast <coughs> and it fell on who? What do we know about lots now that maybe you didn't know before. Did you guys learn something new about lots this week when you did this work? How many of you were familiar with the subject of casting lots? Most of you? Okay, When? what is the purpose of a casting a lot and how was it used in the Old Testament? How did God view it? Who did it? Was it only the Israelite nation? Were it, was it other nations? What, did you answer any of those questions for yourself when you did your... Pardon? This was not no, these men were not. So, ne- what we see from just this record is Culture. it is a cultural thing in that day as well. It's not just Israel who does casting of lots, but it's also other nations, okay? But how does, okay, so then let's compare that. How does God view casting lots? Yes. Yes. One was a yes, and one was a no, right? Okay, this is very interesting. And where were the, the, the Urim and the Thummim kept? On the breastplate of whom? The high priest. It's very, very interesting. There's a couple of verses. One of them says that you shall wear this upon your heart, the high priest's heart, for the decision is of the Lord. Now, I thought that was really cool. So how does God, since God... Um, Laid out all the articles of the temple. He's the one that designed them and 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 uh, then commanded that they be made. Since he's the one that said, "I want you to put these upon the breastplate," and he's the one that commanded the the high priest, who represents whom, who is our new high priest, Jesus himself, right? So he's a he's a preamble or a pre, or. A Pre picture basically of Christ as the high priest, and he says, Upon your heart, you're to wear these. And then there are many references I have a bunch of them, Exodus 28, Leviticus 8, Numbers 27, Deuteronomy 33, Ezra 2, and, and I only those are just the few, but there are tons of references where they cast lots in this in the nation of Israel. So this was not only Okay with God, but it was actually ordained by God. And what was the what was the purpose for casting a lot? Well. Right. Why would they have to do it that way? I mean, what would what would make them go to the place where they say, "Well, let's get the urim and the thummim out," right, or let's get the the casting of lots out? Go Very good. Have you and I ever been there before? You just don't know which direction to go. It's very interesting. We looked at one verse on this subject where we see, again, a hard decision was in Acts chapter 2. What was that about? I'm sorry, Sarah, say it again. Yes, they're replacing Judas amongst the 12. Judas had had died, of course, and now it was necessary. Now, this was a really interesting story, and she didn't have us read it all, but if you back up, it's really cool because they're in the upper room where Jesus had told them, go and stay and wait until the gift comes, which I have promised you. They're in prayer. There's about 130 men in this this upper room, and it says that um, Peter, while in prayer, he recalls a scripture of David, and then he quotes this to them and says, in this scripture, it tells us that we are to replace the one who falls. The, it says, to, uh, of his office, it is to be filled, okay? So the one that vacated his office because of treachery, it is to be repl- he is to be replaced. So under divine inspiration, in time of prayer, Peter is, it's impressed upon Peter that they are to do this. The scripture comes to his mind to give him validation. He lays it out before the council. And so then what do they do in order to make a decision? They've got it narrowed down to two guys. They've, they've, do, they've done their vetting process. They've talked about all the qualifications necessary. Now they're down to two guys, but they can't decide. So what do they do? That's right. Now, just for an FYI, where in a timeline does the cross go to this event? Before. But where does the falling of the Holy Spirit and the establishing of the church and the new after? So we're in this interim time of Old and New Testament. We've got the f- we do have the, the fulfillment of the new covenant being implemented, but the falling of the Spirit has not yet come. Right, So we're waiting for that. And so in this time, they're still operating underneath Old Testament laws and works. You're going to see that all through the book of Acts. There's, there's this gradual switch from the old to the new system. And in this old system, they are casting lots to have the decision from the Lord. So very insightful. So it's, a, it's purposes that we would know. He says in um, Proverbs 16.33, this is how God views it. The lot is cast into the lap. The lap of who? Who's, whose lap? No, it's ca- cast into the lap of a man, human men. But our are men aren't control of it? No, but it says, but it's every decision is what? From the Lord. Although man rolls the dice and throws it, it's not man that's making the decision. It's thrown into his lap, but the decision is from the Lord. And so the old, this, this teaching on this that God gave to us and then gave to Israel was that casting of lots was to be used when a decision, a hard decision was needed and that, that you just didn't know which way to go. Right? Okay, so they attempted to do right, not desiring to sin. These men cast lots. Now, this was interesting. It, what was going on with uh, Jonah at the time when he, they were on this ship? Huh? Yeah, he's down in the bottom of the boat sleeping, right? So they bring him up, they cast the lots, they figure out it's him, and now what? What happens next? Yeah, Jonah is thrown into the sea. I know. Very interesting. And I loved that about these men. I mean, they really did have an awful lot of integrity, didn't they? They really tried hard not to throw him over. They tried to get to shore. They tried not to, you know, do it. Th- and then when they, and when they did it and before they did it, they literally lifted a prayer to God saying, do not hold this against us, Right. Do you think God heard that voice, that prayer? Absolutely. It's so cool. It's such a neat s a neat part of the story, the the idea of what these men did. These men Pardon? This was jealousy. Yes. Yes. And, and it, it's just, and not knowing that, but it's like, these guys, these these heathen sailors who don't know God, they have the, their own gods that they are worshiping and looking for, and they're grasping at any God they can think of to pray in this terrible storm time, but they are showing up, quote, righteous Jonah, who's not so righteous at the moment, right? Amazing. there is more of in a lot of people, not just I think, it's, I think it's a neat, a neat thing though, that God, it's kind of like a side story of along this journey of Jonah, he's supposed to be going to Nineveh. He comes into contact with these men and God is presented to him. The gospel is given to them of who God is and, and he's the God of heaven and of the seas, right? And these men end up at the end doing what? W- and worshiping God, yes. Okay, what is it? Say? Yes. 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 In would not perish. And yes. Would not yes. No, not. I know, exactly. God's desire is that, that all men would come to know that none should perish. No, not one. Right? Yes, exactly. Okay, now, so, then, after Jonah is thrown into the sea, we see, then, the Lord did what? I love that word, appointed. How many looked up that word? What? (laughs) Come on, y'all. You did. I did, but, okay, now, this is very interesting, the word appointed, because, you know, the... the, um, the disbelief that people have, right? Is it fact or fiction? Let's, let's talk about that for very briefly. Do you think that the Jonah story is actually true? And why? Well, and why? Okay, first of all, it's written in the, in the inspired Word of God. So for you and I, we believe that. But I can tell you, Brenda, there are a lot of people who do not look at the Word of God as divinely inspired. They think that it's some of it contains the words of God. The, the red letters in it are the God part. But the rest of it is written by men and there's error and flaw in it. And it's written by the opinions and even often through the cultural understanding of the time only. Therefore, it doesn't even have application to us today. So they take a lot of those passages and, and disregard them. So how do you how do you go about apologetically coming to an understanding we you know i think she did a good job in her homework what did we do in order to apologetically come to that understanding do you remember we did we looked at a whole just so you understand the whole counsel of god's word that is what you want to do anytime you have a question about it, is, you know, am I getting a, f- uh, a good interpretation, and am I getting the big picture, what you want to do is get a whole council understanding. If you're doing something in the gospels, you want to look at it synoptically, because there's a record of it generally in all, or, or at least a couple of the other um, uh, synoptic gospels, so you can make a comparison and get the whole story. When you're looking at a subject like Jonah himself, you can say, okay, is this a true story about a real man? did he really live? And by the way, what about that fish, right? What kind of fish was that, that great fish? (coughs) And there are people who look at this, it is not possible for a fish to swallow a man and for a man to live for three days and not die. It's not possible. Okay, so what do we do? We're looking at whole counsel of God's word. So she takes us to the New Testament, well, first of all, we went and we looked at Kings, where we saw Jonah mentioned the first time. How was he described in Second in Kings uh, 14, I think it is? How was he described there to us? His servant Jonah, the son of Anakim, uh-huh. the prophet, who was of Gath Hesper. Okay, so we now know that he was, according to that record, by the way, how do you interpret that particular passage? It's a literal interpretation because it's a historical record. It's written in one of the books of history, kings, right? So it's the record of the kings. Are real kings mentioned in there? Are they a liar? Are they just made up people? They're historically correct. We even have records of these historically correct men, right? So he is named by name. He's confirmed and strengthened that he is a literal person by his father's lineage being given and then he is given a title of position in the community as a prophet, prophet. so he's a prophet of god so we get out of, so now we have him on our Right, so we get all of that from 2 Kings 14.25. It's in the time of Jeroboam and uh, uh, Amaziah. These are the two kings that are ruling north and south. We, we, this is where we place Jonah. And we know that Jonah actually gave prophecies about Jeroboam's rule, right? What did he, what were some of the, what was the, that he prophesied? What did Jonah prophesy in the days of Jeroboam II? That he would do what? Oh, you have to back up. I bet it's not in your. T- okay, I'm sorry. You're right. It's, it's, you have to back up to get it. It's, he talks to him about going and conquering lands and, and basically reclaiming uh, re, um, the, the territories that God had indicated that were to be theirs. And so he goes and he does that. And it's, uh, one of the, um, Pastors I listened to in another sermon on another day was he said that it was such a massive amount of land that he took back under their control that they had lost through different wars of different times that it was it was like doubling the size of his territory. It was amazing. So it was quite supernatural, quite honestly, for any one king under his rule alone to attain or to bring back into possession that much land under one rule. And he did it. And it was prophesied by Jonah to do so. So now we have a concrete man affixed with two historically accurate kings and kingdoms. We even have a dating, approximate dating time then of when he was in time in history. And so now we have something that's really concrete. Now, just in case people don't really like the Old Testament, then she gave us our New Testament references, right? What did we learn there? Jesus talked about Jonah. Yeah. And so if you're one of those people that... Read the red stuff in the Bible and leave the rest there of There you go. Jesus said all that red. There you stuff. Go, all that red stuff. When Jesus speaks of Jonah, does he speak of him as literal and factual or as something that that's a parable? Is there any mention of parable, the word parable or or imagery in any of it? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, what is it that really strengthens our um our our understanding that what he's do Jesus does there is actually validating the truthfulness of the literalness of that event. He speaks about Jonah being where? In, in the belly, bell-y-, bell-y- of the for how long? Three days, and three, three days and three nights. And then he says, the sin So shall the son of man be. This is what was interesting to me. Jesus quotes the event in the person of Jonah as factual and validates his office as a prophet. So one of the things he does, and it actually says, remember Jonah the prophet, he names him by name and, and validates his, that he is the a prophet of God. And then Jesus says his, his coming death, and his personal coming death and resurrection would be a sign, right, just as Jonah's miraculous event was a sign to the Ninevites in that day. So he makes a comparison, and uh, <coughs> one of the things I did is I, I did a little, you'll see a clip art on your chart that you'll get, but one is Jesus coming out of the tomb, the other is Jonah being puked up on the sand by the fish. <laughs> because both of these were signs. Now what were these signs supposed to do for the people who witnessed them? Show the truth. To see the, to see truth. To see the, the the power of God also to perform miracles. Remember in John chapter two what Nicodemus said about Jesus when he spoke to him, he says, We know that you are a prophet from God because why? you could not do the things that you do if, it, if God were not with you. Why? Miraculous signs prove the power of God is true. And it validates or confirms or gives authority or credentialing to that person. So in the case of Jesus, Jesus quotes what happened with Jonah and says, just as that was a sign to them in that day, my work in my day is going to be a sign. And so he makes a parallel comparison. Do you think he would do that if he didn't believe that he was a truthful person and that it was a truthful event? No, it would not make. S- it wouldn't even be logical to to draw that conclusion. Okay, so the Lord. So then the other thing to do is. So we did all that. We did our research. We made the comparisons. We see that what Jesus does is very strongly validated. The historical record in Kings completely validates that Jonah is a true person and the, the event actually was literal. It's like, was there a li- literal flood? Well, it's written in a historical record, right? Okay, then the next word is this word a- appointed. If you're, if you're confused about the fish, and you're like, well, was it a whale, right? No, that's not what it says. It was a great fish. What kind of a great fish was it? What is the, the, um, the adjective affixed before it? The word Appointed, right? Mm-hmm. It was an appointed fish. Okay, go ahead. Yay! Good. Mustard or assigned? Or assigned, yes, mustard, brought, brought, In other words, commanded. Mustard as in like you muster an army. Not yellow mustard. Mustard, <laughs> an army. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay, so you mustered. okay, very good. Um, any other thoughts about that? Well, if it's something that's been mustard, Or assigned. What does that tell you about this particular fish? He was special. He was special. Yeah, exactly. He was actually a fish designed and appointed by God, so he was something that was supernatural. He doesn't have to be just any old fish out in the sea. He is an appointed fish by God. So God appointed him, which means, therefore, this is a supernatural act. Now, couple that with what Jesus said. The event of what happened to Jonah being swallowed and then... Um, uh, puked up on the sand, right, for him to, to go and give this message, that that was a sign. Well, the, and then that Jesus's event was also a sign. So we see that it was prepared as a supernatural thing. It was supposed to inspire awe, wonder, amazement, right? It was to intrigue you if you heard of it or saw it or, or witnessed the, vo- the voice of Jonah, or in this case now, the voice of Jesus. And then when you see these events happening, you—it it is supposed to bring about and result in belief. Okay? Imagine if somebody saw the
1: vomiting. That's what... I the know. The reason that hit me this time was the vomiting on land would have just stopped your... Whatever you were doing anyway, going, well, that doesn't happen every
0: day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: That's what hit me this time more than anything else was that in and of itself was a sign to them that this was
0: something not normal. Yes, exactly. It was not just, so that is your answer to people when they say, well, well, was it a whale? No. It was an appointed fish. It was specifically um, mustered or assigned, or some other words here were prepared, assigned, ordained, and provided. It was specifically provided for this event, and it was to be a supernatural wonder or sign. Okay. Right. If it were a normal fish. Yeah. (coughs) Right. As another witness. Yes. Yes, it would be another witness to the truthfulness. Okay, so on the whole, we're going to title this chapter, Jonah fled. And then I put God hurled a storm if you want to sh- make it just more understanding, you could just say God pursued. It doesn't use those words in the text, but you could use that as a, t- as a title as well. So that's your chapter title. Now chapter two. What is chapter two all about? What is Jonah doing here? Jonah prays. This one is a little more straightforward, not quite as many... Uh, things in it, but boy, is it a great one. So verses one to three, what do you see Jonah do in chapter two? We got to tie this up pretty quickly. What did he do? Yeah. He called out to the Lord in his distress. And that's when I want to say, yeah, you want to yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah, it took him three days. What a yeah. And then he sa- it says in uh, four to seven, what did he do? What did, what happens it like you said, yeah, it took him three days, but finally what does he do in four to seven? Actually it's in verse seven. He actually calls out to him uh, and prays for him towards his holy temple. Yeah. Yeah. He does remember. I love this. He says, I remembered the Lord, but when did he remember? While I was fainting away. <laughs> I'm like, okay, you wait until you're fainting away. Let's not do that, you guys. Let's not wait till the place of fainting away before we remember the Lord. This is what not to do. But how many times can we do that? Yes, we do. but I'm, And I'm just saying, don't. You know, don't. This is here for us to learn from. I love that that Romans passage that says that these things were written that we might learn from them, right? And so we're to do this. He says, here, he, eventually he remembers the Lord. In, in Jonah 2.4, where he talks about what you just mentioned about, that he seems to have understood or known that his, uh, his being away from the presence of the Lord and out of, and away from the temple itself was something temporary. I think that's really interesting. What does that show you about his heart?
1: He it says... There's a change
0: of some sort. A change is beginning to happen already. When you and I re- realize and know, and most of us know it all right away, but when we're out of fellowship with God and we've, quote, left the presence of God, not that he leaves us, he's there, Right? but that we're hiding from God because of our sin. How, how do you feel? What, what is your emotional state? And what is it that you, you kind of long for? <laughs> there you go. The, the joy and the, and the peace is gone. There you go. You just want to get back in his presence. And that's what I'm seeing with what Jonah says here, that although he is away from the presence of the Lord and he's not... Um, you know, in that, <coughs> where the, the holy temple is, but he really has an expectation that he is going to go back to that place. So I just see, it, it just shows that his heart is almost uncontrollably drawn back to God, that there's, he's away from him, but if you're his, God is going to be drawing you in your emotional places. He's going to, he's going to draw you through his spirit for you and I by the Holy Spirit. Conviction will come and a, and a loneliness for God and being in his presence comes upon us. And that motivates us. Um, Jeremiah and Daniel, we looked at those two um, verses, also Isaiah 45, right? Um, What do we see God using calamity to do? I mean, he certainly, this is, would you call what's going on with uh, Jonah a calamity? Oh, yeah. So what is God's intent and purpose? If God allows you and I to go into a hard place or a bad place like Jonah, what is God's intention in allowing us to go there? Sometimes actually putting us there. Okay, he's he definitely there's a a verse in James one three that says the testing of your faith, meaning true faith, right? It produces endurance and then endurance produces and it goes on and on. So God's real desire is to refine us, right? And to draw us back. He doesn't do it to harm us, it's not to harm you, but for your good, right? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. He says this to Israel plans to to bring you hope and a future, not to harm you. All right, so um, Jeremiah says that God sends calamity to do what? Do you remember that? When you looked at your subject of calamity, what day was that? It's all, mine is all pink. <laughs> what is God's purpose? Well, just guess. You can figure this out. To repent. Exactly, to come back. Very good, excellent. He wants people to turn back to him to repent and to obey him, right? Okay. Um, In eight and us to eight and nine now. The purpose of calamity is to turn us back. Okay, 8 and 9. What, is, what does Jonah then do? That's the statement that salvation is from the Lord. Very good. It's a very clear statement. I thought it was really interesting the way he weaves in the contrast about other gods and how people's relationship with... What happens to people who have... Um, A weak faith in things which truly are not true, right? They, you know, they may kind of believe it, but apparently not fully, according to what Jonah is saying here. What is the contrast between them and us when hard times come, when calamities come? Do you remember what Jesus said about the the people that were following him? I think it was in John chapter six, and he said they were not really of us because they did what? They left. they left. And if you're truly of us, what do you do? You stay, even though there's persecution, even though there's difficulty, even though though I, your God, and your Father may send calamity upon you to rebuke you, to refine you, to teach you, right? To turn you. Even though I may do all those things to you as your loving Father, when those calamities come upon you, if you truly know me and truly love me, what? You will not leave me. And I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the purpose of calamity is to turn us back. So do we see that with Jonah, that that's what God's design and purpose was? We're not quite there yet, but we are beginning to see a softening of his heart on at least a certain level, right? Would you say that's true in our relationship with God too, that sometimes turning back to God is a slower thing. It's so it's, it's a whole, a whole, much better if we just wholeheartedly turn around and say, I'm back, I'm sorry, right, and, and get over it. But for some of us, sometimes we're walking in the other direction. And we're like, well, I'll just walk like this <laughs> <laughs> with my eye over my shoulder because I want to see you. But, you know, I, I'm not seeing where I'm going, but I, I still want you you know? So it's kind of a half-hearted turning. Did we see that in any of the kings of Israel in our, sto- in our previous records that we've looked at? Some of the kings that half-heartedly followed God, or followed him for a while and then failed, and then sometimes they came back. You know what was very interesting to me, blew me away? Ahab. Do you remember the story of Ahab? What happened with a- Ahab? Uh huh. Unbelievable. God relented of the, of the judgment. God had passed a judgment on Ahab in his house and on Jezebel in his house. Ahab repented in sackcloth and ashes. God said, I like that. I will not do it in his time. I will bring judgment later in his son's time. Now, that does not mean that Ahab got saved because later he turns back to his wayward ways, and God does exactly to him what happens. But, but what it shows you is God responds to the action and the attitude of the moment. Why do you think God did that for Ahab? What was, what was the lesson he was teaching at the moment for this, the nations that we're watching? You could repent. Yes, anybody can repent. It's so simple, isn't it? It's just so totally simple. Anybody can repent. And if you will repent, I will hear and I will respond. And so he does. Even Ahab think of that. He's pretty awful, right? Think about Nebuchadnezzar. Do you guys remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar? Arrogantly up on the top of his, of his um, castle, a palace, you know, look at this great thing that I did by my own hands, and, right? And then God puts him into the field of, of grass and tells seven periods of time have passed over. And then what does he finally do? Turns his, he- his eyes to heaven and confesses that God is most high. And in that moment, what happens to Nebuchadnezzar? He walks faithfully with God. That's an amazing story of salvation by a pagan king who, if you go back and read his record, horrible, much like the, the Assyrians, just vicious things that he did. So in, now let's go on here. So Jonah confessed, the Lord. So this is, I would like to call this the rededication passage. Here he goes to a rededication. Jonah confessed that the Lord is salvation, and then he also renews uh, his vows. Are we going to be able to do the video? Oh, good. Okay, well then we'll do this one thing. We'll be finished then. Okay, last last of all then, when Jonah does repent, then how does God respond? He Im- immediately. Isn't it interesting? That fish had to have already been on the way, because it was an immediate thing. As soon as he confesseth at the Lord his salvation and renewed his vow to God that he would do what he vowed to the, before the Lord then immediately then the fish vomits him up on the on the beach or on the sand right he commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land so that was like okay God knew that was coming <laughs> right he knew the heart of Jonah he already knew how long it was even going to take and, he had, and it had all been predetermined. And I think it was so predetermined in time in history that this event take place that then with Jesus, and he said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, on what day did Jesus ri- raise from the dead? On the third day. Isn't that amazing? All right, so this last one in 10 then is that uh, the Lord delivered Jonah. Okay, so now you guys have got the flow on this. Uh, sadly, today was really more of uh, getting us back into the swing of where we've been. <coughs> Excuse me, we had to spend, and did you notice my coughing calmed down? So God, God,
1: God is good. I'm thankful, and thank you, Lisa, for helping me out. Um,